Genesis chapter 25, just for context, setting the scene just a little bit. It has been a couple years since Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah, has passed away. Additionally, his only son, Isaac, um, has married. He's married Rebecca. They're in the process of starting their own family. Abraham is an old man, but he's still a vibrant man. He's still very much alive, and it's with that context that we're told in verse 1 of Genesis 25 that Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him, and I'm not going to read the names, they're six sons. One of those sons, Jokshan, begot Sheba and Dedan, so that just records two grandsons, and the sons of Dedan, now recording three great grandsons. You can read their names and figure out how to pronounce them on your own. The sons of uh, Midian, so this is one of his sons, so we're going to get five more grandsons. You can read through that. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Abraham is 135 when he remarries Keturah. And over the next 35 years, his family multiplies, filling his home. Please understand, there's nothing wrong at all with Abraham in such a position remarrying. His wife has passed away. You can understand and kind of relate to the fact that the, the old man doesn't want to be alone. His son's starting a family. His wife has passed away. He's still got some years, some vitality in him. Not sure at that age I want to be dealing with toddlers, but knock yourself out. (laughs) Abraham, he remarries, Keturah. You can understand it. And in a sense, Keturah, we're not given anything wrong about her, nothing a mark on her character. As a matter of fact, her name simply means incense. And no doubt, she was a sweet-smelling aroma for Abraham in his latter years. Additionally, I think it's probably important that Moses extended out this part of the new Abrahamic genealogy in order to do something important for us and for the children of Israel. In laying out the sons and the grandsons, the great-grandsons of Keturah and Abraham, Moses is, is kind of explaining the family connection that the people of Israel had with these other nation groups, these other nationalities, these families. He's also laying some foundation as to why uh, some of those people also had a connection uh, with the God of Abraham. Uh, As an example as to why this might have been important for Moses particularly, in his own story, Moses flees into the, the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years, spends 40 years in Egypt, kills the Egyptian, Everything ends terribly for him. You can read about it in the first couple chapters of Exodus. He flees. He runs into the wilderness, the Sinai wilderness. And it's while he's there for 40 years that we're given like a really interesting glimpse into some new characters. He marries a woman by the name of Zipporah, who we're told was a Midianite. That means that she's a descendant of one of uh, Abraham's additional sons through Keturah, Midian. So Zipporah was a Midianite, 
has a line back to Abraham. And beyond that, we're told in Scripture that Zipporah's father, a man by the name of Jethro, cool name, is described in Exodus 3 verse 1 as well as Exodus 18 as being a priest. It's kind of a very weird passage, but Jethro's described as the priest of Midian, so much so that in Exodus 18, he actually makes an offering and a sacrifice for Moses, for the people, to the living God, to the God of Israel. And so it could be that that Moses is kind of giving us some of this genealogy, giving us some of the family connections back to Abraham to kind of explain that the Midianites, while they would become opposed to Israel in later years, uh, still had an interesting connection. Uh, That's the best I've come up with. Keturah. She would give Abraham six additional sons. But there was no question in that home as to the supremacy of Isaac as being the promised son, and therefore the only heir. We're told before he died, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines before, quote, sending them eastward away from Isaac. Like, I'm sure Abraham loved these sons just as he had loved Ishmael. But because Isaac was the promised son, the ultimate heir, even before he dies... He sends these other kids away. He gives them gifts. He makes sure they're taken care of, but he sends them to the east so that there would be no rival for Isaac. Now, this phrase, sons of the concubines, is misleading because what it it does is it implies that in addition to Keturah, there may have been other women uh, that Abraham was knocking boots with that led to other children which would kind of be a, a real weird thing because that doesn't seem to be exactly sanctioned by God. And so this, this word concubines, it leaves us with a, a really weird vibe about what might be happening here. And I don't think that's necessary. First, this word concubines, it's translated into the, into the plural, right? Concubines, plural. That's not how it is in the Hebrew. It's singular. It's one concubine. Now, while that might be an insulting way of speaking to Keturah, because Keturah is actually Abraham's wife. She's not a concubine. Moses, once again, illustrating, nailing home, hammering home the supremacy of Isaac, probably just uses this word concubine to differentiate Keturah's role in the big picture to Sarah. Anyway, verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Merami, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zor, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, and that was in a previous chapter. You can go back and read it. There Abraham, in this field, this cave, was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Ber Roy. Abraham, this man, this great man, this flawed man, A man, no doubt, 
Scripture calls the father of our faith. The only man in the Bible that we're told was the friend of God. A unique man. Abraham. A man who in spite of the fact that he failed more than he succeeded, was still considered to be righteous. And why was he righteous? Was it for his good works or his good deeds? Was it for his faithfulness? Hardly. Abraham was a man called righteous for one reason, because he believed that God would send a Savior. And it was that belief, Scripture tells us, that was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham. A man who received the blessings of God. A man blessed in so many ways, not because he did anything to deserve it. Quite the contrary. A man who was blessed for one reason. God's grace in his life always remained sufficient. This man, Abraham. After 175 years, a hundred of which were spent walking with God, this man, Abraham, finally, we're told, breathed his last and died. We're told in a good old age, an old man full of years, being gathered to his people. I love the way that, that Abraham's life gets surmised in, in this verse. The original language is so rich, so deep. First, the idea we have here behind Abraham breathing his last, presents for us not just an, an, a matter of fact he died. It presents the way he died. He breathed his last, and in the, in the original presents a peaceful passing, that he, he passed with tranquility. Like Abraham didn't wrestle in death. He didn't have things to fear in death. And here's why. We're told that he lived a life full of years. Now, if you notice in your Bible, and look at the text, we're told, or we read, these two words, of years. Do you, do you see that they're italicized in, in the text? They're italicized for a reason. And, and on a side note, this is true throughout Scripture. Anytime you run across an italicized word, the reason it's in italics is because it's not there. Like it's added in, to provide context, to provide better clarity of understanding of what's being communicated. Of years isn't in the text, meaning that a proper reading is that Abraham died an old man and full. And that's important because the Hebrew word full, it doesn't mean he, he had a lot of years, but he died full or literally he died satisfied. He passed in peace because he died full. You see, Abraham, his life, when it came to the inevitable, inevitable place that all life will ultimately find itself, when Abraham's life came, when that day approached where he's now on the doorsteps of death, Abraham was able to die in peace because he had lived with no regrets. Now, that's not to say that there weren't seasons in Abraham's life. He wouldn't have liked a pass or a do-over. But the point is that as it pertained to his continuous faith in God's Savior, that Abraham died knowing he had run his race. And he was at complete peace knowing 
that he had finished well. He had held to the faith all the way to the end. It's very similar to the Apostle Paul and kind of the way that he surmised his own life in writing to his protege, a man by the name of Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 8, this is what Paul says. It's very similar. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. It's his way of saying, the time is coming. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Friend, please realize, there is only one decision in this life, one decision that you will make in this existence that will last for eternity. Only one. One decision that you'll make that when death approaches will yield peace as opposed to torment. And that one choice, the one decision, the one thing that matters is what you do with Jesus. Will you reject your life for his or reject his life for yours? That's the decision. It determines peace upon death. It determines what comes next. One decision. Beyond this, we're told after dying. Look at the text again. This is interesting. Abraham, so he dies, but we're told what? He was gathered to his people. The implication of this phrase is that Abraham's death was not the end of his story. It wasn't the end of his, of his existence, but rather his death was the very moment that Abraham entered into an eternal existence. You see, Abraham was not dead. It's impossible to be gathered to your people if you're dead. The implication is that yes, he died, but he wasn't dead. Instead, he went somewhere. He was gathered someplace with his people as those who had died before him who had also placed their faith in God's coming Savior. Abraham joined what the Bible calls a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12. Abraham joined a heavenly host of men and women before him who had also died awaiting that day when God would offer for their sins a Savior on Moriah. Abraham. He might have drew his last breath, but it was in that very moment that he immediately found himself and the company of his people. And who were his people? In that moment, Abraham finds himself and the company of Adam and Eve and Abel. Men like Enoch and Methuselah, Noah, Shem. No doubt in that moment, who else did he find himself back reconciled with? No doubt, Sarah a woman who also died and was gathered to her people. You see, like Abraham, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, the only one, by the way, to have conquered death, there is no reason for you to ever fear dying. And here's why. Death is really nothing more than a passage into a much better and glorious existence. Friend, when I die, 
don't weep for me. I'm in a much better place. You can weep for those who will miss me, like the two or three people. You can be bummed out. You know, hopefully I die in a good way. It wasn't like some stupid accident because I was a moron. That'd be, that's not the way I want to go out. But, but even then, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I'm in the presence of God. I am, I am more alive than you are. And that's the same for you. It's the same for me. And take joy knowing that for those of us who have experienced loss, we've experienced loss. But that person, oh, they have gained. They've gained mightily. 1 John chapter 5, we read, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son Jesus. He who has the son has life. He, do, he who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, the name of Jesus. Finally, we're given this interesting scene whereby Abraham, he breathes his last, he dies, 175 years old, but we're told that his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, bury him in the cave of Machpelah. Like what a scene that must have been. Kind of a related note, it, it, it implies that Ishmael at this point was around. Like, how would Ishmael have known? They buried the same day. There wasn't a delayed burial. They didn't have the embalming techniques and all the things that we have to preserve bodies. It happened quick. Meaning that Ishmael got word Pops wasn't doing well. A letter, a carrier. He drops what he does and he comes home. He comes back and he's there. These two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, burying their father, Ishmael, the son who had been sent away so many years before he returns. And he and Isaac, they honor their father. There's no bitterness. There's no animosity, no hate. Ishmael, my conviction, was a convert that he understood it was important for he to be sent away for Isaac to be the man he needed to be, and for God's will in his own life to be accomplished. As a matter of fact, the next several verses, Moses is going to provide us kind of the rest of Ishmael's story, his genealogy, for the specific purpose of letting us know that God had indeed fulfilled his promise to Hagar so many years before that her son would become a mighty nation. And yet, notice before he does this, following the death of Abraham, we're simply told, look back, that God blessed Isaac. Like his father had received the blessings of God. And in like manner, here we find Isaac being blessed, receiving the blessings of God. Why? Had he done anything? Any, any great victories? Any great accomplishments? No. Isaac receives the blessings of God for one reason. God chose to bless him. Yet another incredible example, another manifestation of God's unmerited favor, or what we would call his grace. 
Verse 12, this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. These were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. We'll skip all that. These were the sons of Ishmael. These were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes, according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, full one, 137 years. He breathed his last, I love this, and was gathered to his people. Who were his people? Ah, his father Abraham and those who had come before. They dwelt and were given this location, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all of his brethren. Back to what's important, verse 19. Now, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, and Pada Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire to the Lord. The last time we saw Isaac was at the end of chapter 24, specifically Genesis 24, verse 67. We read that Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent. He took her, she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, in regards to the timeline, it's important to keep in mind that according to verse 20, Isaac is 40 years old when he gets married to Rebekah. But then, and we'll get to it, verse 26, if you just look ahead, we're told that Isaac is 60 years old when they're finally blessed with children. Like this means that, that Isaac and Rebekah have been trying unsuccessfully to have children for 20 long years. This is just a subtle detail we're given, but man, imagine the emotion just skipped over, right? Like what that must have been like for Rebecca. Now, I point out Rebecca because I don't think Isaac had any worries. And I think Isaac was fully aware that God had a plan, was confident that God was more than able to give them a son, even if he waited till they were past childbearing years. I mean, his very story illustrated that God was more than able to do that. Like I'm sure during the entire situation, this whole struggle that Abraham proved to be a great encouragement to Isaac, right? For context, Esau and Jacob are born, uh, they're, born they're, they're 15 years old when Abraham dies. So Abraham's very much alive. He knows the boys. The boys know Father Abraham, family unit. And yet, while Isaac probably had a peace and Abraham was an encouragement, I don't think any of those things would have alleviated the angst of Rebekah. Like, don't forget, Rebekah had never been given the privilege of knowing Sarah. She'd never met Sarah. Sarah had died before she ever came onto the scene. All of the stories 
of, of Sarah conceiving in an old age and all these stories of faith and what God did and all of those things, it was all secondhand. I'm sure she believed them. I'm sure to a degree they were encouraging, but she hadn't been there to see it with her own eyes to really experience it. I mean, beyond that, like she's 500 miles away from mom. This is a culture that that relationship still mattered. It'd take two months to travel. So she doesn't have her mother for encouragement. Like imagine, consider this, the pressure of marrying into a family whose entire worldview and hope for salvation was based on you conceiving and bearing a child. You want to talk about pressure. It's not just providing an heir. It's if I don't get this done, there ain't going to be a savior. Like that's what she's dealing with. Like that's the brutal reality of it. That was her struggle. And I'm sure Isaac, I'm sure Abraham were supportive, that they were encouraging. But the insecurities she must have experienced on a monthly basis when she realized, again, she wasn't pregnant. It had to have been brutal. For 20 years, this goes on. Even though Isaac knew that this was all in God's plan, even though he knew that it wasn't her fault, she still dealt with the stigma. And that culture barrenness, it, it, was, it was seen as the judgment of God, that you had done something wrong, which is why God wasn't allowing you to be fruitful. <laughs> Husbands, have you ever been in a situation similar to Isaac here? A situation where your wife was struggling and you were absolutely powerless to do anything about it. Like Isaac, there wasn't an obvious or tangible solution to the problem. There's nothing Isaac can do. And he sees his wife suffering. He sees the torment. He sees the struggle. He sees the tears. Like the only thing he can do is to suggest they have sex, which doesn't go over very well. <laughs> but I mean, then what else can he do? He's not a doctor. He's not an MD. Like, he's powerless, which is maddening, right? Because men, what do we like to do? See problem, solve problem. When I see a problem and there's no solution, there's nothing that I can do, that's the worst. It's terrible. It's frustrating. I'm a problem solver. May I ask, like, what do you do? Husbands. In those situations, or better stated, what should you do in these situations? Because Isaac did something. We're told in the face of such a situation, one where he's no solution, what does he do? Look at it. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. He couldn't do anything but one. He could get on his knees and he could plead, he could pray, he could intercede. How long had he been doing this? A year? A decade? Had he been pleading for all 20 years? The text doesn't tell us. 
Like we're not given the time frame. And yet, how fascinating. He pleaded. It was active. It was continual. It wasn't once. It was ongoing. And yet when the time was right, what, what happens? Look at it. The Lord granted his plea and Rebecca conceived. Don't miss that, husbands. God worked in Rebecca's life in response to the pleas of Isaac, her husband. We've noted this over the last few Sundays. But in a macro sense, ever since his miraculous birth, ever since he had been taken up onto Moriah and offered by his father, Isaac has been a picture of whom? He's been a picture of Jesus. Like even last Sunday in that love story, we see another picture of Jesus and the spirit going and bringing back a bride. The imagery remains constant. And building off of it, the Isaac Rebecca, Christ church, you, your wife. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, husbands, love your wives. <laughs> and here's the qualification in case you want to debate what that looks like. He says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Isaac pleading for Rebecca. It's an example for us as husbands, but it's a picture of Jesus and us. Isaac loved Rebecca. Isaac cherished her. And when there was nothing he could do to alleviate her struggle, he demonstrated his love the only way he could, but still a powerful way, by getting on his knees to plead on her behalf. Now, Before we move on, I want to take a minute and just consider the implications of Rebecca being a picture of the church, and more specifically, a picture of you and I as Christ followers. While she entered into this incredible relationship, right, with Isaac. And how? How had she? She had responded to the appeals of Eleazar, the helper of the father, this picture of the spirit. She's in a relationship with her husband. She's responded to the moving of the spirit. But what now is her great struggle? Her struggle is barrenness. Like more than anything in this world, what did Rebecca want? She wanted to be fruitful, like she wanted to yield through her body a new life that would please whom? Her husband. And yet the problem is that she finds herself powerless to accomplish this. She's unable. Like what did Rebecca need to yield a life that would please Isaac? She needed two things. She needed not only the intercession of her husband, but for God to ultimately yield such a life supernaturally through her. There's a picture here. For every Christian, there is a day, a moment in time, when like Rebecca, the Spirit of God calls you to enter into a relationship with Jesus. A day when he makes his appeal 
And you have to make a decision to leave behind the life you knew for the life he wants to give you. And once you say yes, and thereby enter into this incredible relationship with Jesus, like Rebecca, what happens? Well, first, it's only natural that you now want to yield a life that your Savior, your husband, Jesus, is going to find pleasing. When you come to Christ, you responded to the Spirit. You no longer want to sin. You no longer want to do the wrong things. Instead, you really do want, maybe for the first time ever, godliness to manifest in your life, fruit of the Spirit to spring forth for all to see. You want your life to matter. You want your life to please whom? Jesus. And yet, if we're being honest this morning, the truth is that godly living doesn't automatically happen. Sure, you've submitted to the leading of the Spirit. Yes, you've entered into a relationship with Jesus. No doubt your desires have changed. You want your life to please Christ. And yet, if you're honest, your behaviors don't immediately follow suit, do they? It's not like you come to Christ and you walk out like this super dude that does everything right all the time. You're like, this is easy now. No. As a matter of fact, it's like, boom, day one. Moment one, you're hit with this reality, right? But wait a second, I, I, like, I've responded to the Spirit. I've rejected the world. I've come to Christ. Like, why am I, like, what's happening? I want to do these things, but I don't do these things. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, in describing this very struggle, this is how he presents it in Romans 7. See if you sympathize with it. He says, for what I am doing, this is Paul, okay? For what I'm doing, I, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, that's what I do. For the good that I will to do, I don't do it. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. And then he just says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Rebecca comes into a relationship with Isaac. All she wants is from her life to come life that her husband would find pleasing. And yet, what's her problem? Her problem, like you and like me, is that even in that dynamic, like Rebecca, you're barren. You see, try as you might, to live up to your calling as the bride of Christ, it won't take long for that brutal reality to sink in. That if left to your own efforts, your own devices, you are powerless to yield a godly life naturally. Like a woman unable to conceive, there is something fundamentally broken in your flesh. Something about you that simply doesn't possess the capacity to conceive, to yield life. But all hope is not lost. Though she was undoubtedly barren, like Rebecca, she still could conceive. How? How was it possible? Two things had to occur. Her husband needed to intercede on her behalf, and God would have to enable a supernatural conception within her flesh. 
Like the only way Rebecca was able to yield a life that would please Isaac was for Isaac to intercede on her behalf and for God to then work within her in response to Isaac's appeal. Please understand, this dynamic is Christianity. This is your life in Christ. Godliness, Christ-honoring behavior, spiritual fruit, in and through your life is only possible as a supernatural work of God yielded through the continuous intercession of your husband, Jesus, on your behalf. It's a good thing that in both Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, you know how Jesus is described? As our high priest in heaven doing what? Making continuous intercession on our behalf. Why? For what? God, yield through them godliness. Make them more like me. Take that heart of stone and soften it. Do a work they can't through their flesh because they're barren. Jesus, like Isaac, is pleading for us, his bride, that we would conceive and bear a life that would please him. This is why legalism is such an abomination. Legalistic rules for moral development within your life are pointless. And here's why. Apart from a supernatural work of God, yielded through the constant intercessions of Jesus, you will never yield anything that will please him. If it comes from anything else, it's not pleasing. It must come from Jesus' intercession as a work of God. Rebecca, like Rebecca, what grace that while we may have been barren, this entire work of life spawning in and through us, something that's accomplished in us, it happens independent of us. I take great encouragement in that. But the imagery doesn't end there. Consider that while Rebecca conceives, so she conceives, what happens? Look at it. The children struggled together within her. So she says, if all is well, why am I like this? So she goes and she inquires to the Lord. Like this pregnancy thing was an entirely new experience for Rebecca. And while she had known, she conceived as a supernatural work of God. This struggle now within her led to an interesting question. She says, if all is now well, why am I like this? Something isn't functioning because there's a struggle happening. Look at what the Lord says in verse 23. He said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. <laughs> For starters, this word struggled indicated these boys, these twins, within Rebecca's womb, were actively opposing each other. Like, it wasn't like they were playing. These dudes are at war inside of poor Rebecca. Like, in a sense, the word struggle, it means that each of these two boys are vying for supremacy. They are playing king of the hill all the time, trying to knock the other one down so the other one can reign. That's what's happening here. And to explain why there was so much strife, why this was happening, 
The Lord tells Rebecca that within her womb, the reason that there was this struggle, these two boys vying for supremacy, is that there were two nations, or literally two peoples within her. This word peoples, it's an interesting word. It indicates that the two boys were completely different people in manner, or literally each of these two boys, the reason that there was so much struggle is that they both possessed an opposing nature. Of these two natures, the Lord continues by saying, look at it, the younger would be stronger than the other, meaning the older would serve the younger. Well, there is no doubt that there is a literal fulfillment of this prophecy as it would practically play itself out in the lives of Esau and Jacob. And we'll get to that in the weeks that come. There is a larger point made here that possesses a particular application for you and I. But don't forget, quick recap, the typological nature of Rebecca representing you, the believer, okay? So that's what we've been building on. She's been called by the Spirit. She chooses a new life with Isaac. Her dead womb comes to life. How? Because she did anything? Nope, supernatural work of God. And from all of those things, what results? She now experiences an internal struggle because there are two opposing forces inside of her. Sound like the New Testament? Sound like what Paul writes extensively about concerning the flesh and the spirit? Sound like you and I? Like understand, within every believer, the Bible describes an internal struggle an actual war raging inside of you between your sinful, carnal flesh and the Spirit of God. And what are these two things doing? What are they struggling about? What are they vying for? Complete supremacy. They're not trying to leave room for the other. They're trying to command and conquer. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that, you do, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see, when we use the phrase to ask Jesus to come into your heart, what we mean by this is that you're asking Jesus to replace your sinful nature, your dead spirit with his righteous one. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And it's when this supernatural work of God occurs, two things immediately result. First, your soul, the real you, that's been separated from God since birth. That sin nature, that deadened spirit you received from Adam is instantly reconciled with the Father. Through Jesus because you've been filled with his Holy Spirit. The Bible describes this, that you've now been made alive in Christ Jesus. But the second thing that happens is because you now have the Spirit of God, this new nature indwelling your seed of desire, which is your spirit, the very body, your body, that these desires control, it begins to naturally behave differently. But once again, if we're honest, there's a truth that those behavioral changes in your life, changes that happen via God's spirit and a supernatural work of God in you and through you, it doesn't happen without a level of resistance from what? 
from your flesh. See, though the indwelling spirit has changed who you are, because it's tethered your soul back to God, which is why you're righteous, sinless, an heir, a son, etc. And now that the spirit even has control over the body, because he resides in the seat of desire, there still is the literal effects of sin and this mortalness. You see, your flesh, or what's also called as self, is actually nothing more than a reference to this unregenerated mortal body that remains tainted and corrupted by sin and will find itself led to death and then resurrection. Meaning, this battle between your flesh and the spirit, it describes two contrary forces within you being directed by your soul or you, your will. On one side, there's your body, your flesh, still corrupted by sin, one that by its very constitution pursues the pleasures of self as its chief ambition. We all understand it. We've been there. But on the other side, there is the supernatural, the spirit, which desires to now use your body as an instrument of righteousness. It rejects sin. It wants to live in holiness. The battle experienced within now rests in a decision of your will. You either surrender control of your body to God's spirit so that you can live consistent with the new nature you've been given, or you allow your body to function as it always and naturally will, corrupted by sin. You have to decide, do I walk in the spirit or do I walk in the flesh? This is what makes this prophecy given to Rebecca so fascinating. And to me, deeply applicational. Look at what God says to her. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. But keep in mind, within the struggle between your flesh and God's spirit, it's a real thing. But always realize the battle is totally lopsided. The reality is that the older, that older nature is what? It's you. It's your flesh. It's what's been with you. This passage says it will serve the younger, the new, God's spirit, because the younger is stronger than the older. Once again, this is why Paul, in, in, in discussing this whole, this whole concept in Galatians 5, 16, he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What he means is that if you, through a decision of your will, make the choice to see control of your life to the Spirit's influence, it will naturally then tame your fleshly proclivities to sin. Why? Because the older will serve the younger. The Spirit is fundamentally stronger than your flesh. Which also explains, while when you seek to master the flesh through legalism, you'll never attain a greater spirituality. You see, choosing to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh apart from the Spirit's influence will never make you more spiritual because the flesh has no power over the Spirit. This passage says it's weaker. In actuality, such an attempt only leads to greater pride in the flesh. In closing, it's interesting that the answer to Rebecca's question, right, like what happens here? 
She conceives. There's this struggle. And she's like, if all is well, why am I like this? Like, why do I have this struggle if everything is okay? If I'm operating as I'm designed? The irony to her question is that her being like that was the indication all was well. In her barrenness, guess what? There was no struggle. You see, the struggle, it indicated life. And the same is true for you and I. If you sense this struggle between the flesh and the spirit, and you fail and you succeed, but there's this struggle, man, and you feel it. You didn't have that before Christ. I had no problems doing whatever I wanted to do. And yet, now I have this struggle. There's part of me that wants to go do this, and then there's part of me that really doesn't. And I'm, which one do I submit? Which one do I give supremacy to? What, blah, 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 blah. Like this struggle, why am I like this? Is everything's okay. Aha, everything's okay. Because you're like that. What that means is that there's something different in you that's causing the struggle. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, dead men don't wrestle. It's, tr it's true. You see, the very nature of this struggle within you, this struggle between the flesh and the spirit, friend, it's evidence of spiritual vitality, <laughs> that there's life in you. Honestly, the greater concern would be that if you aren't experiencing an internal struggle, between the natural tendency to sin and the Spirit's desire to manifest a greater holiness if you don't have a struggle to do the wrong thing. Well, that might indicate something's off. If you're a Christian and you came here this morning and you're struggling, hey, all's good, all's well, that means there's life. That means God's doing something. Walk in the Spirit. It's stronger than the flesh. But if you came to church this morning and there isn't a struggle, you're like, man, I got no problems cheating on my wife, cheating on my taxes, doing things that are displeasing to the Lord. I don't think twice. Well, friend, there's a problem. The struggle that's all right. The younger, going to kick the older's butt anyway. That's all right. But if there is no struggle, there's no life. And that's something you should consider. So, Father, thanks for your word.